Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is our second session of our series Overcoming Folly, which I think, I was thinking last night, I want to rename. I want to rename this series. I'm trying to remember the name that I thought of it. It is something like, why would you think that? I think that's the new name for the, for the series. Like, why would you even think that? Because this whole series is about the way we think, but more precisely, the way we think ourselves into bad decisions. I started off last week's class by asking the question, if we're so smart, why do we end up doing such foolish things? And I explained that according to Kabbalah, the answer is because we're so smart, we end up doing lots of foolish things. In other words, the nature of the mind is such that the mind can be used to explain all sorts of behaviors and all sorts of activities that we know don't really make sense. But the mind gets behind it and the mind somehow leads us into the space where, you know, we can, we can justify even the most negative behavior. So to give you an example, or to, to kind of put this into context. So the way it works typically is that when we're thinking in, with, in a rational way, when we're thinking with our, um, with our rational mind, we're thinking logically and rationally, we typically make good decisions because we're thinking about the actions and we're thinking about the consequences and we realize, you know what, this, you know, it makes sense to do this or it doesn't make sense to do that. And, and there's, there's some sort of, there's some sort of measure of, of, of like a checkpoint that the mind has to keep us away from negative stuff and to keep us plugged into positive stuff. That's what the mind really is intended to do, and that's when the mind is working in a healthy fashion. It has this ability to do that. So we have maybe a desire to do this, that, or the other, but the mind says, you know what? Bad idea, not a good thing. Steer away from them, step back from that precipice, and don't step further. It's not healthy, it's not, it's not good. It's destructive. And so we do. That's when the mind is working in a healthy fashion. But what happens very often in our experiences that we want to do something and we know somewhere inside, we know that it's not healthy behavior, but instead of the mind telling us, wait, stop, don't do it, it's not going to work out, the mind says, you know what, you should do it and I'll tell you exactly why you should do it. And the mind justifies the negative behavior. So this is when the mind is no longer acting as a checkpoint, as a... Um, as a safety measure, as a safety valve against the negative behavior, but is on the contrary promoting the unhealthy behavior through logical explanations and through rationalizations. Now this is not just a failure or the mind failing in its duty, but it's actually, it could lead to even more degradation than had we not had the mind in the first place. What I mean to say is like this, and I touched on this last week, the mind, because our minds are so powerful, it's the nature of the human mind, it's so powerful and it's so creative, it can actually lead us into behaviors that the heart couldn't even have dreamed of. I'll say that again. The mind is so powerful, the mind is so, it's so powerful, that it could lead us to rationalize negative behaviors 
that even the heart could have never dreamt about. Which is why, which is why, human beings are capable of destruction, God forbid, on a scale that no animal could ever cause. No animal could ever cause the level of destruction that we human beings can. Why? Although animals also have, some animals have, um, I'm not, uh, it's not a judgment against any animals, but animals have a, some animals have a vicious nature when they feel threatened, right? Very protective nature when they feel, um, when they feel threatened and they lash out if they're cornered. But no animal could ever wreak the type of destruction that we human beings can. Why? Because of the mind. Because of the human mind. You would think the human mind would keep us away from the destruction, and it's that it could, but when the human mind is turned in a different direction, it can serve the other purpose. The other purpose being it can veer us off of a healthy path into a negative path and almost, I'm only saying almost to be nice, almost without any limits. That's how far the mind can go in rationalizing negative behavior. I gave last week the example of the Holocaust, and there are countless examples that could be, that could be brought where human beings use the mind, not just a nature or whatever it is, but they use the mind to rationalize negative behavior, evil, horrific behavior, and because the mind is behind it, it can go so, so much further than had the mind not been involved, than had there not been a mind involved, had it just been something of, of the heart. Okay, let me stop and check in. Is what I'm, does what I'm saying make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay. I remember in school, you know, you would have teachers telling some certain students, if you only use your mind to study instead of giving all the excuses, right? Instead of explaining why you didn't or why you don't have to or why this, that, or the other, if you only use your mind, the same, the same brilliance to actually study and do your work, you'll be top of the class. You ever heard that before? You ever, uh, I, I'm not, by the way, I'm not advocating telling that to a child or a student. I'm not saying that that's a healthy thing to say. But when we were younger, I think, you know, things, times, times were different and maybe things were a little bit different. And, um, and, and sometimes you heard that. You know, teachers would tell students that. When the students came in and, and spun a whole story about why they this, that, or the other, and they couldn't, and, this, and very creative stories. Yeah, use the creativity for something positive. The, the point is like this. We are natural storytellers. We are natural storytellers. In fact, when we have, when we're confronted with different pieces of information, we naturally want to weave together a story. The mind doesn't allow it to remain fragmented. Oh, there's this piece of information, that piece, and that piece. We will connect the dots, whether correctly or incorrectly by nature. We are connect the dot sapiens or whatever. We are beings that like to connect the dots. We love telling stories. So if we hear about someone who did this and then someone who did that and then the other thing, 
like, ah, I know why that happened. It's because X, Y, and Z, and that's why it all, it all makes sense. We love, figure, we love cracking the case. We're all amateur sleuths. We love putting together a narrative. But here's the thing. We also love telling ourselves stories. We love telling stories about others and about the things that, that we observe, but we also love telling stories about ourselves. And that could be great, and it could also be very harmful. Because oftentimes, or sometimes, the stories we tell about ourselves are the stories that allow us to get away, that allow us to be comfortable in doing things that otherwise should make us very uncomfortable. So by nature, this thing should make us very uncomfortable. And we should, and again, like I said at the beginning, the mind should, that should be the, the checkpoint, the mind should be the valve that says, the safety valve that says, wait, 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 Are you, you, you want to do this, that, you want to do this? No, that's not good. That's destructive, that's self-destructive, or that's going to hurt someone else. It's going to hurt you, it's going to hurt the other, it's going to hurt the world, it's going to hurt your relationship with God, whatever it is. Not good. Step back. That's what the mind should do. But what happens is because we're such natural storytellers and we love, you know, figuring things out, we can tell ourselves a story why this makes sense. Oh, this? No, 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 no. This, this makes total sense. This, not only does it make sense, this is the best that I could do. This is the best thing that I could do. This makes the most sense. Not only could it make sense, this action that I'm about to do that I know is not good, actually makes the most sense of anything else that I could do, and I'll explain to you why. That's the power of the mind. The mind is the greatest tool that we're given. But like most, like many tools, it could be used for the good, and it could be used for the opposite of good. It's like a knife, right? Are knives good? Depending what you're using a knife for, right? So, depending on the knife. I happen to have here a knife that I use for challah. I also happen to have here an actual challah. So I have a challah and a challah knife. And honestly, if you want to get into your challah on Shabbat, you probably need a challah knife, unless you're just, you know, very hands-on. But it's nice to cut it up, especially, you know, to, to create nice and even slices. So a knife is good in a certain context. At the same time, a knife could, God forbid, be used for something terrible. Right? Something bad. So, so what's the point? Like, the, like a knife, the mind is also very sharp. And the mind is an incredible tool, but the mind is much more powerful than, than a knife. The mind is the greatest tool that we have. And it can be used for the greatest good. It could also be used for the greatest harm. And when I say greatest harm, I mean, in this context, self-harm. It can be used to justify. It can be used to... to explain away all sorts of things first and foremost to ourselves, to our own inner voice that says, wait a second, are you sure that's okay? The mind says, aha, I was waiting for you to ask. Let me explain to you why this is 100% kosher with both the OU and the OK certification. It's 100% kosher and I'll tell you why. That's the way the mind works. And so this course, this series, is dedicated, Kuncha Sumayan, it's one of the, the most epic Kabbalistic texts. This text is dedicated to exploring all the stories we tell ourselves. 
in order to allow us to dive into or to sink into negative behavior. All of the excuses, all of the rationalizations, and I mean all, it goes through dozens of various nuances of the stories we tell ourselves, and each time it helps us debunk, debunk the story, the rationalization, the, the narrative, the destructive narrative that we might otherwise tell ourselves. So when we find ourselves, when we catch ourselves telling ourselves, you know what, just this one time, our text will say there's no such thing as one time. And help remind us that those excuses, those rationalizations, don't really hold water and don't really pass the test of rationale. So that's what this text is dedicated to, exploring why we do the, the foolish things that we do and how to help us move away from that negative behavior by focusing on the mind. One major idea in Kabbalah, which I'm sure you've encountered before, is the idea that the mind is always in control. The mind is always in control because by its nature, Moach Shalit Al-Halev, by nature the mind controls the heart. And even when it seems like the heart is in control and we're being led by our passions, the truth is, like we've, been, like we've been exploring this morning for the last, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, in truth, even when the passion seems to get the better of us, it's the mind that allows that to happen and supports it with excuses and rationalizations and all sorts of narratives that we spin in our mind to justify the passions in our heart. Even when it seems that we're being led by our heart, it's really our heads that are still in control. And that's why it's so important that we have our heads where they need to be. That's what this text is about. If we can get our heads in a good place, if we can get our intelligence, right, our minds in a healthy place, in a good place, thinking correctly, thinking in a straightforward fashion and not contorted, convoluted, then we're going to be so much, listen, there's no, there's no guarantee in life or anything, right? And, and, and we're not going to be perfect all the time, but we give ourselves a better shot when we have, when we're thinking clearly, number one, and when we're aware of the contortions, the, the, the mental contortions that we so often undergo in order to let ourselves get to, that, to, to, to the negative decisions. Let me say that last point one more time, just, so that, just to make sure that, that, everyone, that everyone understands what I'm saying. In other words, what I'm saying is, the more, the more you and I know what we tell ourselves, the more we can be, awit, the more we can be on guard against those stories. And when we, when we sense, when we, when we hear ourselves inside our own heads, spinning that familiar narrative, no guarantees, but we might have a better chance in suppressing that acrobatics, that mental acrobatics, suppressing it and getting back to a straightforward way of thinking. The premise of this, by the way, is that we've all had moments in which we did something and a later moment in which we said to ourselves, why did I do that? That's the premise, by the way. If that's, if that's never happened to you, then, then you can listen to, to, the, to these classes as a curiosity. 
as an interesting thing about someone else. But if this has ever happened to you, where you did something, and later on you, you question yourself, what was I thinking? How did I do that? And you came to the conclusion that in the moment, somehow you thought it was a good idea, even though clearly looking back, you realize it was a terrible idea. But in the moment, you were convinced it was a good idea. If that's ever happened to you or someone you know, right? Then this series is for you because we're going to explore what are the stories we tell ourselves and how we can better train ourselves to avoid those pitfalls. But it always goes back to the mind. So last week, last week we, we explained, sorry, last week we began, we launched this text with a verse that uses the word shittim. It's a place, the valley of shittim. What is shittim? Shittim is related to the word, so he gives two explanations of the word shittim. Number one, shittim is related to the word shtos, which means folly or foolishness. And also shittim is related to the idea of turning, turning away from a path. So if there's a path and you deviate from that path, we call that also Related to the word shittim or shtus, it's also related to that. It's the idea of deviating from a path. And he says in our text, I'm just kind of quickly recapping some of what we covered last week, um, which was the first in our series. So he says that really the two explanations are intertwined. Because what is folly or foolishness? What, what does it mean to act in a foolish fashion? It means that there's a way of thinking in a straightforward way. And then there's deviating from that and doing something silly and doing something foolish. So that's what shtus means. That's what shittim means. It means turning away from a rational path and moving to a, to a negative path. And the Talmud says that why does this happen? How could it be that a person engages in negative behavior or self-destructive behavior? In other words, the stuff that we look back later and say, oh, why did I do that? What was I thinking? I can't believe I did that. That stuff. How do we do that? The Talmud says, Ain Adam over Avera, person only does this. It's only when a spirit of folly or a spirit of foolishness enters the person, which we explained last week doesn't mean some sort of supernatural force, some sort of dibuk, for those familiar with the term, some sort of evil spirit that overtakes a person and causes us to act in a negative fashion. It's not so supernatural. Don't get so, exci so, so excited. The Ruach Shtus, the spirit of folly, is in our heads. It's all the rationalizations. It's all the stories. It's the excuses we tell ourselves. Right? It's all the stuff. It's all the narratives we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about the stuff that we know is not a good thing to do. So, what's the point? The point is when we're thinking clearly, like I said before, when we're thinking clearly, we make healthy decisions. It's when we're not thinking clearly. It's when our judgment is clouded. It's when not only is our judgment clouded, but we tell ourselves that this is not only not good, but it's actually good. And I deserve it. And you deserve it. And everyone deserves it. And the world deserves it. And I'm justified. And it's only one time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all of these things that lead us into a negative place. So we begin at the beginning, with the first sin of humankind. All right, unmute yourself and give me the answer. What was the first sin that we encounter in human history? First sin, unmute yourself for the first sin. Taking the apple. 
Yes, eating from the forbidden fruit. And by the way, in Judaism, we don't call it original sin. We call it the first sin. Why? Because original sin has a different connotation. The idea that human beings are are inherently flawed, inherently sinful, whereas Judaism has a, a bit of a different take on that. Although there is a negative tendency originally that wasn't actually part of the of the human condition, it was an external stimuli in the in the in, in the um, in the form of a snake. But either way, the first sin that we encounter with the human being, the first sin is the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with the tree of knowledge, with the forbidden fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. By the way, Tony, you mentioned apple. It's interesting because in, in, in literature and art, it's depicted as an apple. But in the Talmud, in the Jewish Talmud, it actually mentions uh, a dispute amongst the, the sages as to what fruit it was. And there's, a, there's several opinions, but none of them say apple. So it's an interesting thing where we find this, uh, this different tradition in the Talmud. Either way, the point is, the first sin that happens is with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What caused that sin to happen? Let me, set, let, me, let me support my question. God told Adam and Eve, of all the trees, I'm paraphrasing, of all the trees in the garden, you can eat. Enjoy. It's a buffet. All you can eat. Knock yourself out. However, the one tree, the a.k.a. In other words, I, or also known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that one tree, don't eat. Well, next thing you know, they're making a beeline toward that tree. You can have all the trees of the garden, one tree you cannot have, and that's the one they go for. It makes no sense. Now, you could say psychologically, yeah, you tell someone you can't, that's what they want. Okay, and that's true. But there's another element here as well. And to explain this, I'm going to ask Riva to explain I'm kidding. Riva, say hi and good morning. There you go. Okay, so what is it? What is it about the tree of knowledge of good and evil? So the way Torah describes it, the way Scripture describes it, is it says they saw the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it says first about Eve and then Adam. So Eve first. Eve saw the fruit that it was good, that it was pleasing to the eyes. That's what she sees. That it looks good and it's pleasing to the eyes. This is step one. I told you we're going to go through a number of rationalizations that lead us into negative behavior. The first one and the most basic one is, the, in other words, the first and most basic cause of our negative behavior or unhealthy behavior is, well, it looked good. Right? You ever, you ever have that experience? Later on, you're like, oh, what did I do? But at the moment, it looked so good. It looked fantastic. It seemed great. What could go wrong? Right? It seemed like it was fabulous. What? It seemed great. This is what happens with Adam and Eve in the, in, with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, with the f- forbidden fruit. It looked good. It seemed great. It was pleasing to the eyes. So they went for it. So the first thing we need to understand is we have to work on our minds to understand what is really good. Again, I want to clarify what I'm saying. The Torah uses the word tov. Tov in Hebrew means good. Like mazel tov, which means good luck or good fortune. Or... um, Tov ma'od, very good. 
Tov means good. So the Torah says that Eve saw, Chava, Eve, saw the tree, that it was good, that, w- that it was Tov. This is the, orig- the first cause of sin. When you look at something and it looks good, that's the first cause of the downfall, that it looked good. And so the first correction, I'm going to use the word correction because in Kabbalah we like to talk about tikkun. Tikkun means correcting a problem. So the first correction, the first tikkun, is understanding what is good, what's really good, and what only appears to be good. And this is a very important distinction that we need to make, but not only when we make the choice, but we need to understand what is good. Because Eve saw that the fruit was good. Is the fruit really good? Is it really good? And to understand my question, my rhetorical question, is fruit really good? You might say, yeah, yeah, what's wrong with that? To understand what I'm saying, we need to take a deep dive into Kabbalah's ranking of pleasures. If you got my email that I sent last night, then you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't see the email, let me tell you the title of my email. It was Kabbalah and Coffee, and then it said, Human Pleasures Ranked. Like a BuzzFeed article. Human Pleasures Ranked. This is Kabbalah and Coffee clickbait. I'm kidding. This is Kabbalah and Coffee, but explain, look, Human pleasures ranked. That's how we're going to get into today's topic of defining what is really Tov. Because again, what leads Adam and Eve, what ends up their one-way ticket out of paradise, they were in the Garden of Eden, they were in paradise. What punches their one-way ticket out of paradise, bounce from the Garden of Eden, what is it? They ate fruit that looked good. And so... Today, we're going to focus on one simple question. Was the fruit really good? Is that good? I mean, it might be tasty, right? But is it good? Is food good? And you might be puzzled by my question. And if you are, that's okay. But to understand my question, let's rank some human pleasures. Before we rank human pleasures, let's understand this. You and I are attracted to many things. Many things we are drawn toward, and most of the time it's because we like them. We like them, so we're drawn toward them. We're attracted toward them. Now, attraction is typically related to pleasure, right? You're attracted to something because it makes you feel good, or it on some level, it's, it, it's, it's pleasurable. So there are many things that we engage in, many activities, many pursuits that could bring us pleasure. And therefore, we're drawn toward. The way Kabbalah ranks pleasures on a scale of one to five, we're going to talk about five different pleasures today. One, to, one being the lowest and five being the highest. Here is the algorithm. Here is the... Um, the way that, that these pleasures are ranked. It's not a random, you know, ranking system with some secret formula. No, it's a very logical formula. 
You know what? Let me ask you the formula. If you were ranking human pleasures, if you were Kabbalah, right, and you were ranking human pleasures, what baseline, what sort of metric would you use to rank human pleasures? How would you, how would you go about determining which is higher and which is lower? And what does higher and lower even mean? Let me open it up to you and let you do some ranking. Jump in. Anybody want to take a stab at it? How would you determine which are higher or lower pleasures? Sandrine. What makes me happy? Ah, so what makes you happy? So if this makes me happy, if it makes me more happy, if it feels better, I'm going to rank it higher. If it, if it doesn't feel as good, lower. That makes sense. But, how, but if you were a Kabbalist, not if, I mean, you do study Kabbalah. Um, but if you, were th if, if you were thinking on, you know, on a spiritual kind of cosmic level, right? What would another, that, that's, that's a valid way of ranking, but what's another way that you might rank? Donna, go ahead. Wait, don't forget to unmute, yeah. So the lower would be our lower self, and the higher, I mean, you know, it depends if you go one to five or five to one, but being more lofty would be those pleasure, those attractions that reflect the instincts of our higher nature. Okay, good, good, good. Tony, what did you have? Uh, agree with Donna. Um, you know, you could say that a, a higher pleasure would be reading a good book, but some people will just prefer to watch television all day. Uh, so one might be a higher pleasure, but maybe it's not as attractive. Good, excellent. Susan, go ahead. Um, I would say, uh, uh, oh, which Susan? Is there another Susan? No, no, you're good. Okay, um, ones that would have spiritual nu nutritional value. In good. a sense. So I think like when you're a kid, you just, you want to eat the sugar and it looks good and it tastes great. But as you get older, you want more, you get more pleasure out of eating a really healthy meal, for example, than you would out of eating the, the empty calories. Good. Excellent. Good. Toba, go ahead. Connection. Connection. Higher being the more connection. Excellent. I think all of you are correct. I want to use different language, and I think you'll see how this comes together. Kabbalah says that if a pleasure could be experienced by something that's not human, so it's not an exclusively human pleasure, it's going to rank lower on the list. Are you with me on that? Because if we're talking about human pleasures ranked, ranking human pleasures, so then we should talk about pleasures that are uniquely human. Right? You with me on this? In other words, if a pleasure, if, the, if an animal would have the same pleasure, right? If an animal, you know, in the, in the um, if a cow in the field would have the very same pleasure, right? So that is not a very lofty human pleasure. And not necessarily only because it's less sophisticated, less... The, but because it's not uniquely human. What makes it human? If the animal also has the same pleasure, right? It's not, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't make it uniquely human. So the more uniquely human it is, the higher it will be, the higher it will rank on this ranking system. Does that make sense as a, as a, as a rational metric? Yeah? So again, you and I could, could take you know, a list of 20 pleasures and you, if we were ranking them one to 20, let's say, you know, high, um, lowest to highest, 
we would all come up probably with, with, a different, with a different list, right? Based on our own personal, you know, attractions and whatever, we would come up with our own list. So that's why it's good to have a formula that we can, we can work with. I, we, 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 I took the temperature of the room, and we had some really good ideas about, you know, ha- what sort of metric to use to, to calculate. And I'm sharing with you now the, the core of, of Kabbalah's metric, which is, well, if we're ranking human pleasures, is it human? Or is it an animal pleasure? If it's an animal pleasure, then it's not going to rank high on the human pleasure list. Just because it feels really good doesn't rank it high on the human pleasure list if it's not a uniquely human pleasure. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. What we're going to do now is we're going we're to mention five categories of pleasures. One to five. One being the lowest, five being the highest. You will see. We're going to jump right into the text. You will see that as we go through these various forms of pleasure, they get higher and higher, loftier and loftier in the sense that they represent a more uniquely human experience. So again, can you think of a pleasure that is pretty much the same between animals and human beings? Can you raise your hand if you can think of a pleasure that you and I could have but an animal could have the same pleasure. Can you think of one? Yes? Okay, so without even mentioning it, right, because it doesn't really matter which one it is, right, without even mentioning it, you now know that that's going to rank low on the list, correct? Because if an animal could have the same pleasure, that doesn't make it uniquely human pleasure. So whatever pleasure that is that you had in your mind that I said, can you think of something that you enjoy that the cow in the field also enjoys? Yeah, whatever that is, is going to rank very low on the human pleasure list, according to Kabbalah. Even if it feels really good, it's going to rank low on the list. And by the way, the reason we're doing this exercise, the reason why Kabbalah does this exercise is to help us orient our minds around what is really good. Eve ate from the tree because it was really good. It looked really good. You know who else likes fruit on the tree? Who else likes fruit on the tree? Tell me. Monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. I have, a, I have a, I'm sure you've never heard me say this before. I have a peach tree in my front yard. <laughs> and, and we have every spring, well, if it's not every year, does it like really flourish? But when it does, we have, there's a battle royale between us and the squirrels. Who will get to the peaches first? Because sometimes there's this like gorgeous looking peach. We tell it, like, in the sun, it's, it's, been, it's been, it's ripe, it looks amazing. We have our telescoping, you know, fruit picker that I bought from some sort of farm supply company, whatever, and I, I pull it, it's got these little prongs, you ever see, like, a fruit picker? It's got, like, a foam mesh basket thing with, like, a little claw situation, incredibly designed, some really good engineering on that, and you, like, you telescope it into the trees, I'm avoiding my cable lines or what my internet thing, and I pull it. And I get it, and then I telescope it down, and it makes that journey downward. That journey, you know, when you release the, the telescoping, and you pull it up, and you turn it around, and it's got this big chunk that a squirrel bit from it, and you're like, oh, foiled again. 
by the squirrels. It's fine. I have no problem with the squirrels eating. But all it means is I need to telescope one more time. Here's the point. I like the peaches and the squirrels like the peaches. So I'll ask you a question. How high does this rank on the list? My, my, my enjoyment, my pleasure in peaches. How high does that rank on the human pleasure um, list? Not that high. So for Eve, it's not only Eve, it's Adam also. For Eve and Adam to look at the tree, whatever it was, right? Whatever fruit that tree was, doesn't matter. Whatever fruit that was, for them to say, oh, this is good. This looks really good. You know what that is? In essence, according to Kabbalah, that is an abdication of our humanity. Running after the fruit of the tree and saying, oh, this is good, is abdicating our humanity. Because what should be good for a human being? Something higher than a fruit on a tree. Are you with me on this? That's I have what... a question. Yes. What, what happened if in the moment that I connect to, to, to take the fruit from the tree, I connect with the creation and I connect with what, what, what is the circle to have that fruit and I, I connect with the, with the thankful and with the love of the of the of Hashem and it's any different? Yeah, hundred percent. That is completely a transformation of the experience, which we'll get to. Maybe not today, but we're gonna get to in our text. That would completely move it from a lower experience into a higher experience and possibly absolutely the highest experience of the human experiences. In other words, to take a physical activity and to fuse it with a higher spiritual activity because we're being mindful about, we have the kavana, we have the mindfulness of what's really happening, that can elevate the experience into a completely different plane. So what you're saying is 100% correct. Um, and that would have transform the experience. Well, what I'm speaking about is not having that intention, just being attracted to the fruit because it looks good. Now, there's nothing wrong with it unless, you know, it's forbidden fruit and God says don't, then it's got another layer of, you know, forbiddenness. But typically, nothing wrong with food. But food just for the sake of food, without any higher intention, without any sort of mindfulness and any, any sort of... Um, circle of connection or elevation so it, it, it it's just a lower experience and it's not uniquely human you know we eat and animals eat so it doesn't make it uniquely human and therefore it's going to rank lower on the scale so but excellent question and excellent clarification Thank you. now let's take a look so let's take a look with this introduction in mind i'm going to share my screen with you, and we're going to jump into the text. And it's, it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful to see this in the text. I don't like, you know, all of the words here in the translation, so I'm going to modify it, and you'll see how I modify it. Um, chapter 2. <laughs> so we ended up chapter 1 
by quoting what I mentioned before about the tree of knowledge, right? The sin of the tree of knowledge. And this is the verse, this is the, the verse from Genesis, Genesis 3:6. The woman saw that Eve saw that the tree was good to eat, and that it was desirable to the eye, and she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband Adam with her, and he ate. So Adam and Eve, or even Adam, look at the tree, the forbidden fruit, and they see that it's good and it's desirable. Right? So look at the language of the Torah. Good, tov, and desirable. Taveh. It's desirable, pleasurable, right? It's attractive. So it's good and it's attractive. And so she ate it and he ate it. And that was the first sin. Chapter two begins by commenting, analyzing um, that action. Chapter two, here we go. It is in fact, I don't like this word, but it is incredibly foolish is this the sort of good, and I would put good in quotation marks, toward which the human being, the select of creation, should be attracted? And really, there should be a paragraph break right after that question mark so that we can let the question sit with us. Because this is the question that we are going to focus on today as we rank pleasures. The premise of our rhetorical question the incredulous question. Like, how could they? The question is premised on the fact that human beings stand above other forms of life. And, and that's, not, that's not being, you know, that's not an ego thing. That's not, it's not being superior. All it's saying is that human beings have been gifted with things that other forms of life don't have really with responsibilities that other forms of life simply don't have. So for example, what I said before, we have a mind, we have a, a brilliant mind that's unparalleled in, 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 in other forms of life. Listen, I, I know very well that animals and, and, and even other forms of life have intelligence. I'm very well aware of that. But the level of intelligence that human beings possess is absolutely unparalleled. How do I know this? Because there's no other form of life on this planet that's busy studying human intelligence. <laughs> you with me? We're studying animal intelligence, but I've never seen an animal in a lab studying human intelligence under a microscope. Are you with me on what I'm saying? The, the, yes, other forms of life have intelligence, and we, because we're so smart, we figured that out, but there's a level of intelligence that we possess that other forms of life simply don't possess. And that's not to say, therefore, life is less valuable in other forms and we can therefore, God forbid, be destructive. Of course not, God forbid, to come to that conclusion. On the contrary, when God... I'm going to stop sharing for a moment and just clarify some things. When God says to Adam and Eve that I'm putting you in charge of creation... It's not, and therefore do whatever you want and destroy whatever you want and, and, and rule whatever you want, however you want. No, it's you're responsible, <laughs> right? It's I'm giving, you the, I'm giving you the keys. You're responsible. Take care of it, which is why in Torah there are dozens, dozens of commandments about not harming other forms of life, whether they're animals, whether they're trees. And you're wondering, trees? Yes, 
There's a prohibition on cutting down a fruit tree. Biblical prohibition, even in a time of war, when you need to build something, build a fortress or battering ram or, or create a siege against a city. And so you're saying, well, let me, lose, let me use all of, all of um, the resources that I have in front of me. You're not allowed to cut down a fruit tree. I have a Jewish gardener. Gardener, uh, like, a, like um, you know, someone to cut the grass and do like, you know, the basic uh, landscaping. And so, I remember when we first moved to the house that we're in, there was a tree that was, I don't know, it didn't, whatever, it, it didn't, it, it wasn't growing right or it didn't look right. This wasn't, wasn't the fruit tree, it wasn't the, uh, the peach tree, don't worry, it was in the backyard. And the gardener says, I can't touch it. It's a fruit tree. You can't touch unless there's like, Typically, you can't cut it down. It's, it's, uh, so, now, I didn't know it was a fruit tree. What do I know from trees? I mean, other than, you know, the ones that are obvious. But, you know, it's, it, was, it didn't look like it was a fruit tree. He's like, no, this is a fruit tree. And maybe it wasn't in the season that it was growing when we moved in. So he says, no, you can't cut it down. The point is, here's what I'm saying. The point is that human beings are given intelligence, given all of these gifts that you and I have, and it's not to therefore do whatever we want and be reckless and endanger other things. On the contrary, we're meant to use our gifts for good and to elevate and to take care of and to be custodians of the world. Okay, but here's the point. Let's get back. That, that's just the, the disclaimer. Getting back to our text, let me open this up once, once more and share it with you. So what he's saying here is human beings are the select of creation. Bechir Hanevraim. We are... At the top, again, it's not ego, it's not destruction, it's a responsibility. But we have gifts that other forms of life don't have. So here's the question. Adam and Eve, they went, they said to God, see you later. I know that you want something from us, but see you later. There's a fruit calling my name. That's what happened? They said to God, we have no time for you. You put us in the garden for a mission and you told us what we need to do and where we need to be. But we're telling you, see you later. I really am attracted to this fruit. Not for a higher purpose, mind you, but just because it looks good to eat. That's the good to which a human being should be attracted. All right, so let's continue now. Now, oops, sorry. Now we rank pleasures. Here we go. There are all sorts of pleasures. This should be a new paragraph. There are all sorts of pleasures. We're going to rank them one to five. Number one, enjoyment from lower to higher. Enjoyment of delicious food is a gross form of pleasure. By the way, gross doesn't mean like, ooh, gross. It means, let me look in the Hebrew here. Let me give you the exact Hebrew language, just so there's, clar so there's clarity on it. Um... Yeah, it's, it means it's the lowest. Gross sounds a little bit, I don't know, has a, maybe a bit of a different connotation. It's the lowest, the most non-uniquely human form of pleasure. As is, by the way, it's not just food, right? As is pleasure in physical and corporeal things in general. So by the way, in addition to food, it could be other 
physical pleasures that again could be replicated in the animal experience. Mariana asked a very good question. What about eating food with a higher intention? That elevates it out of this category. This category that we're talking about is enjoying just the physical sensation of it, which by the way is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with it, unless again it's the forbidden fruit, but if, if that's not the case, there's nothing wrong with it, but it also is not a lofty form of pleasure. It's a basic low form of pleasure, right? Why, why is it a lower pleasure? And here's the rationale, and this is where the metric is explained. And, sorry, for these are simply animal pleasures. You see that? This is where he clarifies the metric that we're, that we're using to measure these things. It's an animal pleasure, which means that it's the same pleasure that an animal could derive. An animal also likes delicious food. An animal also likes, again, you know, you can use your, you can, you know, think about what this means, what you think this means, what other forms of physical pleasure animals also enjoy. So there's nothing then superhuman, I don't mean superhuman, but there's nothing like overtly human about these pleasures. Again, it doesn't make it wrong, it just makes it basic. It makes it level one, not level five. It's basic. An animal likes that, I also like it. But that's not, uniquely, that's not unique to me being human. If I was an animal, I would also enjoy it. So what are some human pleasures? So let's continue. An animal is attracted to whatever it instinctively considers satisfying and oblivious of any other form of good, but this is drawn So that's, that's how animals work. An animal says, oh, it's a fruit. Oh, it's this, that, or the other. Whatever it is. Oh, I like it. It looks good. It feels good. I enjoy it. And we also have in our experience, there are things that match the same, the same type of experience. That it looks good, it feels good, it's pleasurable, so we like it. But, let's be very clear here, that's not going to rank high on our list. Because it's, it's the level of an animal. So that's, that's level one. Let's continue. Let's continue. And, and there's other ways to... Um, to, uh, th th there are many categories. We're only doing five, but there are many, many, many more categories. A higher form of pleasure, this would be level two, is like that in a sweet voice. Music, which is of a more spiritual nature. So music, do animals enjoy music? Maybe. Do, um, have I been, I don't know, this is no longer kosher, but whatever. Have I seen videos of like dolphin shows where they play classical music? Perhaps. Did the dolphins enjoy the classical music? I don't think so. Have there been documentaries railing against having dolphins in dolphin shows? Yes. What was it called? Um, Blackfin or something? Yeah, who remembers what that documentary was? Whatever. Anyway, here's my point. My point is, do, do animals like music? Maybe, maybe, but it's a little bit more of a human pleasure. So eating and drinking and other forms of physical pleasures, yeah, humans, we like that, animals like that, pretty much the same way. I mean, maybe we're more sophisticated and we use a fork and a knife, <laughs> but if no one's looking, maybe we don't. So what's the point? The point is that that's level one. Level two is music, right? Something that's more sophisticated, something that's more spiritual, something that's higher. 
Now let's continue. Level, so that's one, two, now let's talk about three. Level three, still higher, is pleasure from traits of character. I gotta explain what this is. Traits of character means the pleasure that you get from doing something good. From like um, an act of kindness. So, you know, you do something and you help someone out and, and, and you see the, their face shining and, and lighting up and it makes you feel good. Chesed. That's, that's higher. Right, that's level three. For example... This is still level three. For example, example of level three is a good person may derive profound satisfaction or pleasure from a favor he, he or she performs for another. Ah, that's a beautiful thing. So again, level three pleasure is the pleasure you get from, I'll use the Hebrew word that's used in the text, it's midos. Midos are character traits. Good character traits. So, compassion, love, kindness, something good on an emotional, on a character level. So that feels good. That's another form of pleasure, and that's a higher form of pleasure. Now this itself, he says, level three, well, hold on, before we continue with, with dividing this into two categories, let me just look at you and check in. So far, so good? Does it make sense? Yes? Yes, making sense? Okay. Level one is like food and other uh, basic, you know, physical pleasures that animals could also have. Higher than that is music, something more sophisticated. Higher than that is, is chesed, is kindness, which we enjoy benefiting others, and, and that's even more spiritual. And then he says within this there's two levels, and let's, let's break this down. Um, let me share my screen again. Let's get back inside. Okay. This itself, he says, can be divided into, into categories. For if the act of kindness is due to a naturally, naturally benevolent disposition without any intellectual discrimination, i.e. he performs kindness to everyone, regardless of merit, and without any purpose, okay, if somebody is just handing out candy in this, I'm just like using a fake example, but handing out candy indiscriminately, whoever wants, right? Here, lollipops. Everyone take a lollipop. Then this pleasure, sorry, then the pleasure in this would, would also be an animalistic pleasure, as it were, because it is an impulse of natural love. And as is known, an animal is primarily emotive alone without any intellect at all. So in other words, if the kindness is just natural without any intellectual discernment, well, then it may slip down from level three back down to level one. You see what just happened there? Because animals also like sharing. Animals also, and there could be kind animals who give, so that doesn't make it uniquely human. Are you with me on what I'm, what I'm saying? Again, the metric here is how uniquely human is this pleasure, is this experience. So food is not uniquely human, but also natural love is also not uniquely human. So animals are also very emotive. Look, I mean, dogs, right? They could be very loving. Cats could be very loving, right? I'm not going to get into the whole cats versus dogs. Why would I do that? I wouldn't set myself up for that sort of debate, you know, cats v. dogs. But the point is animals can also be very loving. 
and very emotive and very, you know, nurturing. So the fact that a human being is also loving and nurturing it doesn't necessarily make it a human pleasure or a human experience. However, let's continue inside when man, again, man is not gender specific, man, i.e. human, when the human conducts him or herself with and derives pleasure from, sorry, sorry, no, 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 this is still, this is still the lower category. When a human being conducts him or herself with and derives pleasure from emotional acts alone without the guidance of intellect, then he or she is similar to an animal. Again, it's not a bad thing, it's just a lower thing. All of man's emotions and traits must accord with the dictates of intellect. In other words, to make it uniquely human, it requires some intellectual thought driving the emotional experience. So, if I'm just giving indiscriminately because I'm loving and I'm giving, but I'm not using my head, I'm just being led by my emotions, yeah, there's pleasure in that. I'm enjoying the giving experience. But if I'm not using my mind in the giving, then is it really human giving or is it just natural giving like animal giving? Which is not bad, but it's not, it's not human. So he says, really, human emotion ought to be or human giving ought to be dictated by intellect. And let's continue. Emotions directed by intellect. Let's jump in. The trait of chesed, kindness, for example, really must discriminate between good and evil. Under certain circumstances, one must be kind also to the undeserving, but only for the sake of the intention and the benefit that will result from it. You know, he's trying to... I'm going to use my own words here. The difference between, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The difference between kindness and enabling. You with me on this? Kindness and enabling. So you want to be kind to someone who's in maybe a, a difficult spot. But at the same time, you don't want to help them to the point that it's going to actually hurt them. I'll give you an even easier example. An even easier example. It doesn't fit into the text necessarily, but here's a very easy example. I gave the example about a knife before. Here's my challah knife, still from Shabbos. So a child has a birthday, and they get a birthday cake, and it's time to cut the birthday cake. And they want to cut it. And let's say they are six years old, and they want to cut their birthday cake. And then they ask for the knife, for a sharp knife. <laughs> so what do you tell them? I mean, maybe you'd probably tell them, no, you can't use a sharp knife. Let's find something plastic, right? Or let's find something that's not sharp. Because even though I love you and I want to give to you, but I'm not going to give you something that could be harmful to you. I mean, that's an obvious thing. Child wants to light a Hanukkah menorah. Okay, but you got to do it in a safe fashion, right? You want to handle fire? All right, but you got to do it in a safe fashion. So chesed, kindness isn't indiscriminate giving. It's not just giving anybody who asks or, or even those who don't ask. That might not be kindness. It might not be kindness to give something that could otherwise harm the recipient. What's required in giving is a healthy dose of discernment to figure out intellectually, well, does this make sense to give? And or how should I give 
in the best way to, to maximize the benefit to the recipient. Because if I just give, it may not be good for the recipient. It could actually harm the recipient. Now, sometimes just giving is good for the recipient, but again, it's a, it's, it, it's a, it's a process of dis- discerning and determining what is good and what's maybe not good. So his point is like this. If we're not using our minds, if we're not using our intelligence, and for example, we're just giving, then it's kind of, it's not bad, but it could be, it could lead to bad, but it's certainly not human on the human level of, of the emotional experience because it's not being dictated by the mind. The human way is to use the mind to rationally do it. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, let's jump back inside. So he's going to give an example from Abraham. Our forefather Abraham, for instance, this is very cool, used to provide for pagan wayfarers in the desert with the intention of proclaiming God's presence in the world and of bringing mankind closer to God. In other words, let me explain what's, what's happening. Abraham and Sarah, the first Jewish couple, opened up kind of like a bed and breakfast. They had an open tent in the middle of the desert, open on all sides, you know, like a place to stop and rest and eat. And the entire intention was that in the process of providing food and, and lodging, they would be able to teach people about monotheism, about God, about Hashem. The Talmud, let's continue. The Talmud discusses the verse, Abraham called there in the name of God, the Lord of the universe. Resh Lakish, one of the Talmudic sages, through a variation in vowel pointing, renders the reading not that he called, not that Abraham proclaimed God's name, but rather Abraham caused God's name to be proclaimed by others. In other words, the verse simply says that there, where Abraham and Sarah lived, he called out God's name. The Talmud says, not he called out only, but he inspired others to proclaim God's name. As Rashi explains, the Talmud, there he taught people to call the name of God. And how did it work? The Talmud says, Abraham taught all the wayfarers, all the travelers, to call the name of God in the following manner. After they ate and drank, they would arise to thank Abraham. And Abraham would say to them, do you, do you then eat? Sorry, did you, did you then eat of mine? You ate of God's. Give praise and thanks to he who spoke and created the world. In other words, Abraham and Sarah provided people, any random travelers, not random, but people who were you know, traveling in the area, come on in, we'll give you a hot meal. And afterwards they said, Abraham and Sarah, thank you so much for the delicious food. And that was the exact opening that Abraham wanted. He says, you think it was my food that you ate? What, I, it's not, nothing is mine, it all comes from the Abishar, it all comes from Hashem, it all comes from God. So thank God who created all of this. Don't thank me. So this was the ultimate purpose of this was his ultimate purpose in generosity. It wasn't just generosity for no purpose, it was intentional. His generosity was not instinctive, but purposeful to bring mankind close to God by this means. In other words, he was kind with. An intention. What was the intention? To inspire people toward the truth that there's a God who runs the world. 
Now, one thing I need to mention, just for clarification's sake. Abraham lived at a time when no one knew about monotheism. It was all pagan. It was all idolatry. And by the way, if you're wondering, well, what's the difference? So one God versus a few gods, who cares? No, 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 no. It's not, it's not quantity. It's not numbers. It's a, it's a radically different perspective on life. You see, the ancients, the ancient pagans believed that there were all these forces and warring gods of human natures and characters that were vying over things and that when upheaval happened on planet Earth, it was because the, the gods were fighting and we were collateral damage and the gods would steal or would... It, 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 it's, it's, when you read this stuff, we had a course called Judaism's Gifts to the World. Judaism's Gifts to the World. And it, we explored in one of the lessons there the gift of monotheism, why it was so revolutionary. Suffice to say that, that the ancient perspective, the non-Abrahamic ancient perspective, was one in which there was no rhyme or reason to the world, no reason for absolute morality or kindness or goodness because of the absolute chaotic nature of the gods who were themselves petty and selfish and horrible. So why would you aspire to anything noble or grand or purposeful when, when, when what was in control was, first of all, chaos and also selfishness? Abraham was introducing a radically different perspective on existence. That there's a God who is kind and loving and this is intentional and we're here for a reason. That was Abraham's worldview. By the way, I will say this. I'm going to say this quickly and then move and then continue with our discussion about Abraham. I will say this. Today, I think the world needs this message once again. Because too many people, especially young people, don't believe that their existence is meaningful. That there is absolute importance in them being on this earth. And it's not a criticism, God forbid. It's, 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 I'm pointing, I, I believe that there's, a, that there's a need today, perhaps more than ever, that this message be championed to let people know, especially young people, that you are absolutely needed, that God put you here on earth, that you have a purpose that no one else has and no one else could ever have. You are absolutely unique and essentially valuable. To grow up in a society, in a world that subtly tells you that you are the product of a cosmic accident and that there's no absolute value in your existence is to rob a human being of their dignity and of their sense of needing to be here. And that's all I'm going to say about this right now. And we're going to move on with Abraham. But, but this message that Abraham brought to the world is as relevant today as ever. You remove this piece of it from society and you're left with a society. You replace... All right. That's, that's, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to move, move back to Abraham. So, what it has, so how did Abraham teach monotheism? So Abraham had this big idea. Everybody... There's some violence and chaos and anarchy and, and, and it's all predicated on this worldview of, of, of chaos in the heavens. And Abraham said, I don't believe in this. I believe that there's a one God who created everything, who is good and kind and loving, and we're all important and we're all intentional. And we're all, there's purpose in us being here, each of us. And this, this could change the world. And I want to share this with people. So how does he do it? Through food. <laughs> straight up he feeds people 
He opens up a bed and breakfast, no charge, and he says, come and eat. And when they ate and they said, thank you, Abraham, he said, don't thank me, thank God. Who's God? Oh, pull over a chair. Let me tell you about God. And that was it. And that's how he educated. That's how monotheism got started. Through acts of kindness. But not just he's generous, so he's feeding everybody. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. It's a big mitzvah to feed somebody who's hungry. It's a huge mitzvah. But sharing food is not necessarily uniquely human. What is uniquely human? Sharing it and also benefiting someone spiritually at the same time. That's uniquely human. Are you with me in the distinction? Yeah. To share food is not uniquely human. Other forms of life study animals, and you'll find that animals can be very generous, not only with their own kind, with their own family, but with others. And, that's, and it's, a, it's beautiful all around for animals and for humans to share. But what's really uniquely human with chesed is when you're not only giving, but you're also educating. You're giving and transforming at the same time. That's uniquely human, and that requires a little bit of seich, a little bit of, of, of intellectual thought. This is how Abraham modeled this for us in this one specific area when it, when it came to teaching monotheism. This is not the only example, but this is one example of, of how to combine chesed with mindfulness. The Midrash Rabbah, let's continue. The Midrash Rabbah states, to elaborate on, on Abraham's uh, methods, Abraham, at the bottom of the page, Abraham welcomed wayfarers. Wayfarers are travelers, right? I think we're all familiar with Wayfair. It's the, like the online shop. Kidding. Uh, Abraham welcomed wayfarers after their meal... He would ask them to offer grace. When they would ask how, he would say with them, he would pronounce with them, blessed is the Lord of the universe of whose bounty we have eaten. He said, let's, let's bench the Abishur. Let's, let's thank God together. Yeah, we, I don't know how to do that. Who's God? How do you do it? So he said, repeat after me. Blessed is the Lord of the, and not in English, but blessed is the Lord of the universe of whose bounty we have eaten. Now, if the guest consented, if the guest said fine, he would eat and drink and go on his way. If he refused, look at this. What if the guest would say, I don't want to bless God. I don't know who God is. I don't, I don't believe in God. Uh, one God. If he refused, Abraham would say, well, and that's, if that's the case, give what you owe. In other words, here's the bill. When the guest would ask, well, what do I owe for the meal? Abraham would list off one kisit, vessel made of earthenware, metal, or other substance of wine, cost 10 polarin. It's a type of coin. One measure of mead cost 10 polarin. One loaf of bread cost 10 polarin. Whoever provided you with meat, bread, or wine in the desert. In other words, he would give them this massive bill. Think about the most expensive restaurant that you know. Multiply it by 10. And that's how, what the bill would come out. And Abraham would say, What? Where else are you going to get this food in the desert? You're going to get a four-course, five-course meal in the desert? From where? This is even higher than airport prices. You know airport prices, right? You, you can't bring your bottle of water in, right? I know you could bring in an empty water bottle, and they have those things now. Okay, fine. But just work with me on my, my humorous example. So you can't bring the water bottle in because of security. But then when you get past security, you can buy a water bottle. But this time, instead of, uh, I don't know, 50 cents, it's now $4.50. Why? Because it's blessed by the airport. So why? Because they can. Because where else are you going to get a bottle of water in the airport? Because you can't bring it in. So Abraham would say to them, all right, you don't want to bless God? That's fine. That's your prerogative. But here's my bill. 
when the guest realized his predicament, he would declare, blessed is the Lord of the universe of whose bounty we've eaten. <laughs> you got to love that. In other words, when the guests realized the bill that was staring at them in the face, they would end up blessing God for the meal. By the way, this is an ancient Midrash, going back a few thousand years, as to how Abraham would teach the world about monotheism. Now you might think, well, that seems like a trick. I mean, they didn't really believe in God. They weren't really thanking God. They were just getting out of this big bill. They knew that if they say these words, right, read this paper, and then you don't have to pay the money, yeah, who wouldn't do it? But how is Abraham teaching monotheism? He was getting people just to say words. Not so fast. The Lubavitcher Rebbe asked this question that I just asked, and maybe the question was in your mind. What was the effect of Abraham? It seems like a trick. It seems like a game, but only, he was only fooling himself. No one else was, was convinced. Not so. The Rebbe says that in truth, in truth, human beings do believe in God. In truth, at their core, at their essence, the essence of their soul, every human being believes in God and purpose and truth and, and, and all of the wonderful things that we talk about. Everyone believes in it. It's just that there are all these other layers that cover over the essence that make us doubt or that convince us that we don't believe, even though in our heart of hearts we do believe. And therefore what Abraham was doing was just cracking through those layers of resistance to get to the core, to get to the core, which is, you know what? I really do believe in something better than this chaos around me. I do believe in goodness. I do believe that the world is predicated on purpose and meaning and goodness and kindness, and that we all should be more of a mensch than, than less of a mensch. At the core, everyone believes in that. So what Abraham was doing was he was just fighting the resistance with another form of resistance. Are you with me on what I just said? Their resistance, irrational resistance to what they really believe in. There's, the premise of this is that everybody has a soul, a piece of God. And, but sometimes it's covered up so that a person may not even be aware or consciously acknowledge that they have that piece of God within them. So this was fighting the resistance with his own resistance, with his own stubbornness. So you want to be stubborn about it? All right, so I'm giving you a bill. I'm going to be stubborn. You'll be stubborn, I'll be stubborn. And then when they relented, it wasn't them saying something inauthentic. It was them saying the most authentic thing they've said, perhaps in their whole lives. Are you with me what I just said? The way the Rebbe explains it, when they would say, blessed is God, um, who created the food or master of the universe, whatever, whatever that line is that we read before, what, when they said that line, that was the most authentic thing that they said. Not the most inauthentic thing, because at their core, that's how they believed. So let's, let's, let's unravel or let's rewind. How did we get here with Abraham and monotheism and wayfarers and food and blessing God and grace after meals? How do we get here? Very simple. We're ranking pleasures. And the way we rank them is, the more uniquely human they are, the higher they are. The more we share them with other forms of life, the lower they are. Not bad, but just lower. So food and other physical pleasures, level one. Music, something more uniquely spiritual, level two. Chesed, kindness, generosity, love, level three. Provided it's done with intentionality provided it's done with some sort of intelligence. If it's just emotion, it sinks back down to level one. It's just like an animal, loving or caring or giving. But this, this level three is higher than that. Okay, let's continue. Let's continue inside. 
we still have some more levels to rank. We have five levels. So let's, oh, let's wrap up this paragraph. This is an instance, this is an example of the trait of kindness when it's done in a manner that is purposeful and deliberate. In other words, when it's done with mindfulness. And all traits, he said, must similarly be directed by intellect. In order for it to be higher, it has to be guided by intellect. If it's just indiscriminate, then it's, it's like an animal level of giving, which is not bad, but it's not, it's not human. It could also be bad, by the way, if, if, it, if it's giving a knife to a child, then it's bad, right? And other, other sorts of examples like that. Okay, All right, that concludes, we're not done today. We're not done for today. That concludes chapter two. On to chapter three, because we're still, we're, he just, for the sake of, you know, creating different chapters, it's broken up like this. But the, the, we're in the middle of, of ranking pleasures one to five. So we have one, two, three. Let's go on to four, level four. Intellectual delight. Superior, here we go, let me highlight so you know where I am. Superior to all these pleasures is, intel, is intellectual delight. For example, there's wondrous enjoyment, pleasure in intellectual discovery. It feels so good to figure something out. It feels so good, right? There's a puzzle and you couldn't figure it out. I don't mean even a literal puzzle, but just a complicated question, puzzle, intellectualized, and then you discover the answer. It's like kind of chachma, right? That intellectual discovery, oh, it feels so enjoyable. It's not only physical, he says the soul delights in comprehension too, in thorough understanding of a subject under study. When you understand something thoroughly, thorough understanding of a subject under study, when you study a subject and you thoroughly understand it, it's such a wonderful feeling. It's, it, it's, 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 it's incredible. This is a higher level. Why? Because it's more uniquely human. It's more uniquely human. I can't say that I've seen many animals finish the New York Times crossword puzzle. That's not, that's not to say that it's never happened. It's just me saying that I haven't seen it. And that there's a certain pleasure in figuring something out. There's a certain pleasure in solving a puzzle, in, in analyzing a subject, researching a subject, and understanding it. There's a pleasure in that. And it's uniquely human. It's not something that typically other forms of life are really delighting in. Look what he says here. This is the finest, the truest, and most exalted. Three words. Finest, truest, most exalted of delights. (laughs) Provided, parentheses, provided the idea itself is good and valid. For if the study is evil per se... Then it, then it would be included among those things forbidden to engage in. So if you're studying something that's, hor- that's horrible and evil, God forbid, right? Like, I don't know, crime or whatever, not for the sake of stopping crime, but for the sake of engaging in crime, and you figure out how to get away with, etc. Yeah, that's not, that's not a holy experience. Now, it might be uniquely human. It might be uniquely human. But that's not what we would call the most exalted of delights. It, it's, 
it's uniquely human. It, it passes that metric. That, yeah, but, but there's another thing that we probably should mention, which is that we're assuming that these things are good and not evil. So if it's evil wisdom, you know, intellect, ideas, then that's not a good thing. So here's what he says. Take a look at this. This really should be another paragraph also. Man, human beings, the selective creation, like the, at the top of the food chain, so to speak, should find his supreme delight in matters of the spirit, particularly in intellect. In other words, human beings that are gifted uniquely with intellect in, in a unique way, we should indulge and delight in matters of intellect. His soul ought to delight specifically in this. For the intellect that was given to him and the intelligent soul that he possesses is his unique quality above all creatures. Look at that. It's the human mind that is primarily the differentiating factor between human beings and other forms of life. So what he's saying is, if you want to enjoy something, enjoy what it is that makes you and I uniquely human. Intellectual pursuits. Furthermore, ah, oh, this is level five. You wouldn't notice it. You wouldn't notice it necessarily, but you got to discern this is level five. That was level four. This is level five now. Furthermore, his godly soul derives from supernal chachma, as we have taught. In other words, the godly soul actually comes from the spiritual dimension called supernal, higher chachma. All the pull of his soul, his entire wish and aim, therefore, should be toward the study of Torah. And this shall be his pleasure. Through this, he will attain the heights of spirit that are his purpose in life. This is level five. Not just intellectual pursuits, but specifically spiritually intellectual pursuits, i.e. the study of Torah, and as we'll explore next week, the study of Kabbalah, which we're actually doing, which is kind of cool, because that's how we get meta. We talk about what we're doing as we're doing it. So, this is where we're going to stop inside, and I'm going to recap what we've done, and paraphrase this last paragraph as well. Let me start with paraphrasing this last paragraph. What he's saying is, let me stop sharing for a second, what he's saying is, the highest... And greatest form of pleasure. Understanding that what defines that is how uniquely human it is. The highest form of human pleasure is intellectual pleasure. Right? That's level four. Intellectual pleasure. So when you understand that, he says, so therefore that would encourage us to invest more time in that area. Because it's a uniquely human pursuit. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't eat or drink. Or the other activities that are pleasurable. And music. And chesed. Of course we need to do all of that. No one's discounting it. But human beings have a unique intelligence. And that should be nurtured by us. So level one is food and other physical pleasures. Level two is music. Level three is... Emotional expression, like chesed, giving, when it's done mindfully. The fourth level is intellectual pursuits. And on top of that, the cherry on top, 
the icing on the cake, the, the level within intellect that's even higher than just any form of study is Torah study. And above that, not above that, but the top of that would be mystical study, Kabbalistic study. That's the highest. Which means what we do Sunday mornings is the greatest thing that we could do. I mean, think about it. It's the greatest pursuit of, of a human being. Yeah, we need to eat. Sure, we enjoy other forms of pleasure in our uniquely human way. But intellectual pursuit, divine Torah pursuit, spiritual intellectual pursuits, those are, that's the greatest form of pleasure. So this is the ranking, one to five. Physical pleasures, like eating and drinking, etc. Music, character traits, character expression, emotional expression, intellectual pursuits, and Torah slash Kabbalah at the top. Those are your five human pleasures ranked. We, I told you that this class was going to rank human pleasures, and we've done it. By the end of our time together, after 90 minutes, we've ranked the human pleasures. Unlike a clickbait article, maybe, where you don't get the list. I don't know if you do or don't. It's been a while. But in Kabbalah and Coffee, we, del- we deliver the list. You get the full list, and you get all the, the, the whole ranking. So what's the moral of the story? Getting back to Adam and Eve. There they are in the Garden of Eden. And God is communicating with them. God is communicating with Adam, and Adam is transmitting to Eve. And God is communicating, saying, this is what I want you to do. This is your role in life. You're going to tend the garden. You're going to protect the garden. You have things to do. And all other life is looking up to you for your leadership. And what do they do? Oh, that looks good. That looks good? You, you left everything else And you ran toward the fruit of the tree, the forbidden fruit. That was it. Forget the fact that it was forbidden. I mean, that's, I mean, don't forget that fact. That's like a major piece of the story. But aside from the fact that it's forbidden, they were running after fruit. Here they are in this, in this, in paradise, spiritual paradise, not just physical paradise, right? Spiritual paradise in, in communication with God. Like living a life of ultimate purpose. And what do they do? They run after food. That's why he said, this is a bit foolish. To to abdicate. To just drop who you are and what you're about and run after something Yeah, you need to eat. It's fine. But that Eve saw that it was good, that it was attractive to the, that it's good and attractive. Why are we getting so caught up in this lowest of pleasures? Yeah, you eat. Fine. But that that should be the whole experience. And you should tell God, see you later, God. Higher pursuits, see you later. I'm now going to eat and really enjoy it. It seems like, a, um, a flipping of priorities. And this is the whole aim of our text is to explain 
the silly things we do to ourselves to understand where in our minds we go a little bit haywire, where things go a little bit in the wrong direction. So the first folly is the folly of it looks good. And the solution to that is understanding what's truly good. You with me on that? They saw it was good one second. Is that really good for a human being? Yeah, you need to eat. But is that really good? Because there's so many things. There are four more things above that on the list. How about a concert? <laughs> How about helping some, some other form of life out? Being kind. How about studying something? How about communicating with God? I can think of a bunch of things that look better or that are better, more good and attractive than that fruit, aside from the fact that it's forbidden in the first place. Anyway, that's where we're going with this. And, and again, it's not about judging Adam and Eve. It's really not, although it sounds like that's what we're doing. It's not about pointing fingers at them. It's about understanding how we operate inside and why it is that so often we find ourselves looking back at, at actions that we've taken and, and we, when we say, like, what were we thinking? What was I thinking? How could I have done that? And if you trace it back, sometimes it's because it looked good in the moment. It looked really good. It's like, wow, this looks attractive. This looks tempting. And the solution to temptation in the moment, not in hindsight, because in hindsight, of course you're going to regret it. But in, in, in the moment, the solution is to tell yourself, ask yourself this simple question, who am I? Who am I? I'm a human being. I'm a human being. And I have higher things to contend with. I have bigger things, bigger fish to fry. I don't know if that's a good, a good, a good uh, cliche. But we have, I've, I have something something more noble to worry about than this stuff or something more noble to pursue than that. That is going to be the first solution to the first shtus, to the first folly. So the first folly is, oh, it looks good, I have to have it. The solution is, you're a human being. <laughs> Calm down, you're a mensch, you're a human being. It looks good, but that's the animal in you. Getting, getting all worked up. What about the mensch? What about the human being in you? Think about what it means to be human. And then we can make healthier choices. All right, that's it for today. Next week, we're going to continue the exploration by exploring what it is about Torah that is so pleasurable to the soul and, and will distinguish between studying the laws of Torah and studying the Kabbalah of Torah. In other words, between what we would call the body of, of, of Torah and the soul of Torah. And what, does each, what is each experience like? And what is the difference between the spiritual pleasure and even the physical pleasure in each of those areas of study? So that's all next week, and we're going to continue advancing our overall discussion about the, um, the stories we tell ourselves. All right, let me check in. So thank you for joining me today. We'll stay on for questions and answers. Um, Susan, you got a question? Yes, I, I don't know, you might have uh, hit on this last week and I haven't listened to that um, uh, podcast yet, but um, you, you've mentioned several times the first folly that um, it's attractive, it looks good. Um, what are the other follies? Um, did you already go over that in the last uh, Vala and Coffee? We did not. This, as the book unfolds, and I should probably show you the book, it's, um, it's over 400 pages. It's much bigger than any, than any other volume that we typically study. So 
it's a my, uh, the reason why I'm saying that is it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a big journey here, and it's written in a way to really walk us through this process. So the short answer is we have not laid out all the follies, um, all of the rationalizations, all of the stories we tell ourselves to get us in hot water or just you know to do things that we regret later on. We're going one at a time. We're starting at the beginning. The first mistake made by the first people happened because they said, oh, this looks good. And they forgot that they were human. And they ran after something lower than where they should have been. They, they fell into a lower place. They were operating from a lower, lower consciousness as opposed to a higher form of, of, uh, of, of, of rec- even self-recognition. Of, but I'm, 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 I'm above that. Yeah, it's good, but that, I'm not going to... I'm not going to sacrifice who I am not going to compromise, it's a better word, compromise who I am running after an apple or whatever it is, right? That's not, that doesn't make sense. But how often in life do we do that? How often in life do we put relationships at risk because of something that catches our eye, right? How often do we put our own health at risk because of something that catches our eye? And yet, later on, we're like, what were we thinking? What were we doing? I cannot believe I did this. But the point is not, in retrospect, to understand that it, that it wasn't good. But in the moment, how do we stop ourselves? How do we, how do we put the brakes on? So this is a... Me- Think of it as meditations. So we have follies and meditations. So folly one is, this looks good. Meditation one is, I am a human being. I am... Bechir Evraim, I am the at the pinnacle, the apex of, of existence. Not, not, in a, not in a boastful way, not in an arrogant way, God forbid, but in a responsibility way. I, I, and I have, I have a higher calling. And I have a responsibility. So I'm going to run after this. But it's really important to understand that this, what we're studying, is not detached from human experience. This is not theoretical Kabbalah that we're studying. This is the Kabbalah of how do I stop myself in this moment from doing something or saying something or thinking something that will be destructive or that is destructive either to myself or to the other or to my relationship with God. And how do I put the brakes on? How do I like put the emergency, pull that emergency lever, stop the train before we go off, before we go off the rails? That's, that's the whole it's called overcoming folly. It's all about how do we get past, not past, how do we solve the, um, how do we prevent ourselves from, uh, from, from, from falling into those foolish patterns of thinking and foolish patterns of behavior? Again, I think we can all relate to this, where we harm ourselves or harm others or harm our relationships, pursuing things that, that look good in the moment. So here's a meditation to think about. Again, we're not done with the meditation. We're still developing it. But this whole idea of ranking pleasures is just to put in perspective where this lies. That's the whole point of ranking the pleasures. right? The whole point of ranking these pleasures, one to five, is to say, okay, so then when I'm in this moment and I'm like really excited about this thing in front of me, where does it rank? And should I be so excited about it if it's number level one? 
<laughs> I'm putting love, right, purpose at risk for level one, right, for apples. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm sacrificing. I'm, I'm making these things. You know, I'm compromising these things for that. That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. But in the moment, we're not thinking clearly. So the point is here to understand where, we, where the thinking goes sideways and what's, why that's happening and have a meditation ready to combat the folly, the shtus, the, the spirit of folly that comes in or that, that, that fills our heads and to be able to walk ourselves back from that place and think more mindfully. In other words, it's kind of like, how do I think in the moment the way I would think a week from now? Right? Or a day from now. How do I get myself in the moment to have the same perspective that I would in retrospect? So that's what we're doing. It's, it's magical. This text is incredible. And we're, we're only right at the beginning. Literally like at the beginning. And this, this is only going to pick up and, and deepen and, 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 and broaden from here. This text will blow your mind on so many levels. All of Kabbalah is in it. What I mean by that, all of Kabbalah, all the major Kabbalistic concepts are in it. I mentioned this last week in the intro. In the course of these 400 pages in exploring what makes human beings tick and sometimes what makes us, or oftentimes or sometimes, makes us do things that we later on regret, in the, in the course of that conversation, we are going to uncover the greatest and biggest and most important Kabbalistic concepts. So on many levels, this text is amazing. So that's a very long answer to a very straightforward question. Susan's question was, so what are the other follies? The short answer is yet to come. But the long answer you just heard. Okay. Um, any other questions, comments? Well, he is saying also that uh, only pleasure we should have is level five. Mm. No, no, he's not saying the only pleasure is level five. What he's saying is when we catch. No, not, that. Not the only pleasure existing, but. No, so what he's saying is, is like this that level, that we have to understand what level a pleasure is at. Now we have to, but understanding which level of pleasure is at can help us work through a moment of temptation, right? So in a moment of temptation, knowing where that pleasure ranks can help us prioritize in our minds. So for example, let's talk about a relationship. So, um, so there's a relationship and a person is now faced with um, a temptation that could put their relationship at risk, right? So if the person's going to respond biologically or instinctively, animalistically, they might make one choice. If they respond rationally from a place of understanding priorities and what's more important, is, a, is the immediate pleasure in front of me more important or is... Love, more important. Well, love you and I know now is level three, right? A loving relationship is level three, right? And, and physical pleasure 
food and other physical pleasures, etc., right, are level one. So then am I putting a level one in front of a level three? That doesn't make any sense. So when I've, when I've done the, when I've, when I've worked through the formula, when I have that meditation in my head, it's not that level one is therefore not human, sorry, is therefore treif, forbidden. No, no, we need to eat, we need to drink, there's nothing wrong with enjoying it, we need other forms of physical pleasure, not a problem. But when it's unhealthy, and when it's going to put another thing that is higher at risk, then it certainly doesn't make sense. So the point of ranking them is not to say that the only pleasure that's kosher is studying Torah. Is that the highest form of pleasure? That's what he is saying that. Yes, he is saying that. Is it the only thing we should do? I mean, listen, as a rabbi who teaches a lot of Torah, I mean, I would definitely say, let's study Torah. I mean, I'm not, you know, so (laughs) I'm in a bit of a cash 22 here, but it's not the only valid form of pleasure. But it's the highest form of pleasure. Knowing the ranking of these pleasures can help us when we're faced with a temptation. Again, if we bring it back to the Adam and Eve example, I think it makes a lot of sense. If Adam and Eve were to have remembered at that moment, yeah, the tree looks good, or the, the fruit of that forbidden tree looks good, but they, they're in a relationship with God, Right? And God's in communication with them. God said, don't, don't, don't go there. So just because it looks good doesn't mean that they should compromise their relationship with God and their mission, right? They're on a mission, right? All of that speaks to higher forms of pleasure or purpose, which we didn't really speak about purpose today, but the, these are higher dimensions of their reality that they're going to compromise, sacrifice, blow up for what? For some, the fruit of the tree? You don't think that Adam and Eve were kicking themselves for all of eternity right after that? Like, what did we do? We let a temporary attraction blow up everything? You don't think they, 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 they regretted that to the end of their days? Of course they did. I mean, I'm assuming they did. <laughs> I'm not a, I didn't interview them, but I, I can't imagine they did. Right? Do we not regret the things that we do when we, God forbid, when we um, harm ourselves or others? And looking back, it was because in the moment it seemed, you know, attractive or good. Of course we do. So what's the point? What's the solution? The solution is, in the moment, being able to have that meditation of perspective of one second. This is not so super important or super lofty. This is like something basic. So let me not put something basic in front of, or let me not let the basic thing compromise or blow up that that which is really significant. All right, I hope that makes sense. So it's not that it's the only valid, level five is the only valid form of pleasure, but it's the highest. And therefore the, uh, it should take, it should just allow us to have perspective of what's important and what's, what's, um, what's less important. All right, I hope that makes sense. So we'll pick it up next week. Again, same bad time, same bad channel. Next week is after January 1st, right? So I'll see you next year. Joking. Well, or not. That's what all the kids said. By the way, I once heard a story. Leah told me that she once heard a story. So it's like, I don't know how many levels of story this is. um, Where a kid 
was traumatized because one New Year's Eve, his parents went out and they said, see you next year as a joke. And the kid didn't get it. And the child, the babysitter that night was like, just, you know, freaking out, thinking that that was, you know, it was going to be a year or something. And parents obviously didn't, didn't mean it like that. But anyway, I'm always hesitant to say see you next year. In case there's misunderstanding. But see you next week, 2021. Um, it's a good time to take good resolutions. And um, I, I appreciate the fact that we're, we have these, these times, opportunities to study Torah together. So thank you for that. Have a wonderful day. Please stay healthy and safe and happy and enjoy life in a responsible fashion. Okay. <laughs> See you all. Take care. <coughs> Bye, everybody. Rabbi, Shavu- pleasure. Pleasure. Shavuot Bye, everybody.